This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. I'm traveling in Texas this week, and our great friend, my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy, is busy along with his wife, Kellyanne, welcoming a brand new baby into their home. They needed a little bit of time. So the show this week consists of a conversation I recently had with a great friend of mine, Chris Casey, who is a principal at Windrock Wealth Management in Chicago, Illinois. And we did a deep dive on this upcoming week's midterm elections in the context, the broader context, of both the political and economic landscape in this country, including the specter of the 2024 presidential election, whether that involves Trump or Ron DeSantis or the uh, failing Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever it might be, and whether or not the midterms will have much to tell us about whether, in fact, social issues, so-called, will continue to dominate our headlines or whether the American people will be thinking more about the economy as they suffer under huge amounts of inflation and uncertainty and dollar degradation. So this is a great conversation, a deep political, economic, sociological analysis of what's happening in the United States. Chris is not only a great friend, but a great interviewer, and we're sure you'll enjoy it. So stay tuned. This is Chris Casey, Managing Director of Windrock Wealth Management. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Jeff Dice, President of the Mises Institute and well-known writer and speaker. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Chris. Good to be with you. So two years ago, we, we had a we did a podcast where we talked about the elections. I remember remarking, both of us were commenting on, on how amazing it was that Trump or the Republicans were in it at all, right? Like, so how are they not down 20 percentage points with everything going wrong that could possibly go wrong? And now I almost feel like it's the exact reverse, right? It's how can the Democrats be in any race how are they not down 20 points across the board? Um, do you agree with that? And what do you kind of attribute that to? Well, I do agree with it. With the Trump phenomenon two years ago, there was this idea of the shy voter who doesn't really announce that he or she is unhappy with the left or with the progressive orthodoxy and was going to vote for Trump because that was the kind of thing that might make you unpopular with your friends or your social circle or at church or at work or something. So there were a lot of these sort of quiet Trump voters and they may, they may not have. And in fact, many of them did not particularly like Trump or care for Trump, but just viewed him as an alternative to this progressive juggernaut, the Hillary's and now the Biden's. And, and here, you know, this time around, you don't have that. Um, if the, the shy voter, there's no shy Democrats, <laughs> people, people who, who are voting for the Democrats, despite all the problems in this country, I think are pretty open about it and pretty, pretty arrogant about it, actually. And I, I think the short answer as to why Democrats aren't completely out of it is because they're skillful using their friends in the media to promote, I guess, what we can call social issues. In other words, they want this election to be a referendum on Donald Trump's fascist uh, Nazi authoritarianism, although Donald Trump is no longer in office. They want this to be a referendum on things like abortion and trans and guns, all of which I would personally view as exceedingly minor issues. I know other people disagree with that, but nonetheless, relative to the big questions of war and peace, the U.S. dollar and the U.S. entitlement debacle, 
I think those are very, very, very serious problems which which stand to affect us all far more on a day-to-day basis personally in terms of, you know, whether we're, we are more impoverished going forward than we are today. So I, I hate to see this social issue stuff dominate, but let's face it, that's that's more interesting and more fun to people to talk about and debate. You know, abortion, for example, people would much rather talk about abortion than talk about uh, what the Fed's been doing since 2008. It's, it's just a fact. And so elections aren't won or lost on logical debate. They aren't won or lost on uh, appeals to reason and sort of uh, you know rational discussions of the facts. They're won and lost on emotion and tribalism. Nothing new about that, but, but here we are. I mean, Joe Biden is so clearly unfit to, to do anything other than go into a retirement home. And that's no knock on him. It's just his father time. Uh, the Democrats in both the House and the Senate are, are clearly just almost deranged, beholden to the worst of their left progressive constituencies. And I mean the worst. I mean people who obsess about gender and things like that and, and who were horrible with COVID. Um, and as far as the Republicans go, they just don't provide a good or coherent alternative. They don't know how to talk about property and markets. They don't know how to talk about opportunity versus dependency, about ownership versus welfareism. All these things that at least you and I would say are pretty easy to talk about, uh, but but they don't do that, or at least they don't do that well. And I think part of the reason is they just don't believe it. I mean, at the end of the day, they're they're more of a, a, a corporatist party and they're they're not very good on foreign policy from my perspective. And so the, the difference between not conservatives and liberals in this country, but between Democratic and Republican nationally elected officials is actually pretty small. And so I think that's that's uh, what keeps the Democrats in this. I'm not convinced of a red wave on this coming Tuesday. I don't know when this will air, uh, but no, nonetheless, I'm, I'm not 100 percent convinced, especially with respect to some of these governorships and Senate seats, uh, I, you know, the Republicans will probably win the House, but uh, you know, that's that's not really to me nearly as important as governorships. Yeah, and the, and the some of these social issues you talked about, the ones that are directly relevant. I'll give you, give you an example in Illinois. How about just personal safety? Um, it's it's crazy what's going on here as far as the amount of crime, and now on January first, they're enacting what they call no cash bail, which really means no bail, meaning they just release people for, for really heinous crimes. Um, and I've, I've personally spoken to you know, lieutenants in the Chicago Police Department who, who man the downtown area, and the, the amount of crime is just skyrocketing. No one wants that post because it's awful. Um, so the progressive issue, I'm sorry, the social issues that are, are relevant aren't even being really discussed, at least in the, the, the appropriate forum. It's like it's take, all taken a back burner to what, what you mentioned is, fairly minor as it relates to a daily direct impact on people, um, issues like abortion. Well, and of course, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, for example, simply denies that this is even happening. Um, the Twitterati say, well, you know, the murder rates are actually higher in these red states. And of course, what they mean is the deep blue cities within these red states. So yeah, you know, when they when you look at red state murder rates, if you 
if you include Miami, if you include Atlanta, if you include Memphis, if you include New Orleans, if you include Birmingham, Montgomery, Alabama, you know, I mean, those are, I mean, this is the, the trickery to try to make people not believe what's so obviously in front of their face. And, and people do care an awful lot about safety and law and order. And that might take the form of a shy voter, especially moms, for example, um, voting against the Lori Lightfoots of the world. But it is pretty amazing how uh, the left just tries to openly deny what people see in front of them. I mean, look at the homeless situation. It, it, it's, it's probably the worst it's ever been in this country, a supposedly rich country. Uh, if you go to Los Angeles, it's pretty remarkable, but it's not just Los Angeles. I mean, you can go to uh, Portland and Seattle. You can go south of Los Angeles, uh, Orange County and San Diego County, which used to be pretty tidy places, uh, have huge encampments, huge villages. I was in uh, Hawaii a couple years ago and Honolulu has vast numbers, vast numbers, an army of homeless people. And of course, some of this we, we can understand simply because the warmer places are are more likely to have homeless because you know you can survive there. It's awfully tough to be homeless throughout a winter in Chicago. But um, you know the fact that we can't grapple with these things, I think, is is a matter. It's it's a failure of will, and a, and a political failure. It's not that we couldn't figure it out and use some tax money, uh, you, you know, with some tough love to build some build some dormitory style places and impose rules on people dealing with uh, drug abuse and uh, mental health and, you know, they'd be forced to work and this sort of thing, but we just lack the political will. And there's an awful lot of homeless people, I'm talking about social issues, homelessness. There's an awful lot of homeless people who are simply retreatists who don't want to be part of, of a nine to five job or family life or, or have rent and utilities or any of these basic things. And so they find it more amenable to live on the streets, given the matrix of services and free stuff, which is available. I'm not saying it's a good life, but they can get disability. Oftentimes they can get social security. They can get uh, food stamps, AFDC, that sort of thing. Um, and And so they just prefer it. And you can ask homeless people and they say, no, I don't want to be in a shelter with a bunch of rules. I want to be out here using because I, you know, I'm, I'm an addict and I, I, I want to use whatever substance I use. So it, it's not that we don't have the sort of logistical or financial ability to deal with the homeless. We just lack the will. There was a time in, in American history where a homeless person would have been very partially dealt with by a cop and, and forced to move along. And we just can't or won't do that anymore. And so um, it, it really is something the way elections now shake out and we don't talk about virtually anything important and we talk ad nauseum about all kinds of unimportant things. And, and, you know, for people who listen to your show, for, for people who are, you know, have some wealth to manage, people who are worried about their vessels, buying this, this is, this is pretty important stuff. I mean, what's going on with the dollar is no joke. And if we don't get out in front of this, um, you know, we're going to find that, our, our kids and grandkids are really facing something, a, a significant decline in the American standard of living. 
And so all of us who are fortunate enough to have reached a certain age and to have grown up in the West, and as a result of that, not so much through our own efforts or brilliance, but the result of previous generations had a, a pretty nice material standard of living, uh, I, I think we have an obligation to those future generations. And that what I really hate about elections I, and politics in general in this country is how much they're just focused on the, the current time period, how, how they encourage us to want free stuff today at the expense of tomorrow. That to me is, is a tragedy. Yeah. Speaking of which I was, I was bike riding a couple weeks ago and I remember I was at this junction, which was like at a kind of close to a homeless shelter. And there was a guy like kind of standing on the sidewalk next to me who literally had a nicer bike and a nicer phone than me. And he was, <laughs> so I was like, I'm doing something wrong. Um, so let's assume that there is no, you know, overwhelming red wave. And in, in, in fact, the Republicans, you know, just capture the House. Maybe the Senate remains tied or, or maybe they don't capture or, or maybe they lose it completely, even without a tie. Um, do you see anything changing, meaning will it effectively block any kind of dangerous progressive um, agenda or do you see any benefits, whether it's, uh, for instance, uh, you know, hearings on particular matters or investigations? I think there's minor benefit in the sense that we should generally support divided government and we should generally support the thwarting of the Biden administration's agenda. And if you look at these people, I mean, there it, it what's really changed in Washington is not so much just the ideological tenor, but the fact that there's really deeply unserious people involved in presidential administrations and executive agencies. I mean, true ideologues, people who are unhinged uh, from reality, uh, people with agendas that are so uneconomic, agendas that just absolutely don't comport with human nature that, you know, that's, that I think has changed. That's, that's far more important than the old liberal conservative divide is this sort of reasonable grounded in reality versus unreasonable grounded in utopian thinking. So if some of the people around Joe Biden are so wildly to the left of this image people had of him as this sort of old corporate senator from Delaware and someone who's been in DC forever and we can trust him and he's not a radical and this and that. Well, I mean, maybe he's not, but the people around him sure are. So yes, I think there's some benefit in the Republicans just having the House, for example, or the Senate in terms of thwarting that. But I don't see a lot of upside because we've, we've seen this movie before where the Republicans have two or even three branches of government in the early 2000s when, when George W. Bush was president. Uh, the Republicans had the House and the Senate. What did we get out of that period? Well, we got two disastrous wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We got Medicare Part D, which, by the way, the prescription drug benefit costs more in actuarial terms over time than the original Medicare, the office visits. The drugs cost more than the office visits. So that's that was an absolute time bomb created by Republicans in, in charge. Uh, we got the Department of Homeland Security and the Patriot Act which are, you know, the, the latter is, is clearly going to be used against so-called mega white supremacists, you know, fascist nationalists, whatever, whatever terms we're using now for people right to the right of Mitt Romney. Uh, and, and so I don't have a lot of faith there. I don't, I think that Republicans in general, if you look at Mitch McConnell, if you look at uh, House uh, Minority Leader McCarthy, I mean, these are people 
who are, are simply go along, get along people who want to run things, perhaps in the House and Senate, but that doesn't mean that they they really view the world much differently than Hillary Clinton does, or that or, or Mitt Romney does, or Liz Cheney does. So I don't I don't have a lot of faith there. Where I find things far more interesting and hopeful and optimistic is at the state and local level, because I think some incredible things are happening there. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with Hans Hoppe, and he's written quite a bit about the dissolution of big sclerotic Western states into smaller parts and constituencies uh, as something that is, you know, may well happen in the future. And that's the opposite trend. If we look at the, especially the, the 20th, but also the, the 19th and 20th century were about Europe going from all kinds of small principalities and dukedoms and smaller states into these bigger mega states that we have today. And of course, we have the EU and, and the United States in, you know, also, so during those same two centuries went from sort of these 50 states in a republic with a, 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 a smaller federal government into basically the states becoming just glorified counties of the federal government in D.C. So those centralizing political trends, those dominated the 19th and 20th century. Political centralization was the story in politics. But in the 21st, if Hans Hoppe is right, and I certainly hope he is, we may see a decentralizing impulse. And we, we've gotten some great glimpses of that during the COVID crisis, where we had a lot of people voting with their feet. We had a great relocation happening within this country, it's away from the more draconian COVID lockdown states towards the states that were more open for business, for school, for whatever it might be. And we saw a lot of crazy housing prices as a result of that. We saw um, governors asserting their own authority over this, their state's COVID rules uh, as opposed to having that come out of D.C. or the CDC or even internationally, the World Health Organization. And we saw a lot of countries around the world also not go with the international consensus and apply their own more localized uh, approaches to COVID. So I think that was a very healthy thing. And so we have what was already starting in America before COVID was that the population was aging. The number of people over 65 is set to double by 2050. Older people in general, not always, but in general, they tend to leave colder climes because it's, it's difficult to deal with four feet of snow when you're 80. Um, so the, you know, the Northeast places and also places like Cleveland and Chicago and Minneapolis and Midwest, they, these were, the, these areas were losing population relative to the Phoenixes and the Austins and the Orlando, Tampa, Floridas. So that was already happening sort of as a natural demographic shift of older people moving towards warmer climes. But I think it's really accelerated. And so now when we talk about New York City, you know, I don't think of it in nearly the same way I used to. I don't want to go to Broadway play there. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I have no desire now to visit. I used to visit several times a year. So that's, you know, that sort of thing where the new America is – along the southern half of or where the energy is in the new america certainly in the southern half of the country and so the the that that has a, a really profound effect on politics because especially the northeastern part of the united states was was like for lack of a better term more left-wing more liberal more democratic and as it loses influence and in residence to the southern states i mean what what democrats were counting on chris absolutely article of faith prior to Hillary Clinton's incredible upset loss to Donald Trump, 
was that there was an inexorable, inevitable demographic shift happening that could not be stopped, which was going to turn Texas blue and which was going to turn Florida blue forever and ever. And then they, in the Electoral College, the, the Republicans could never again win a national election and that we would have the Democratic Party in charge of this country, at least at the national level, there would be holdout red states like Nebraska or something like that, but, but Democrats would dominate. And so when the COVID great migration happened, it appears we don't have really good data yet. I mean, this midterm will provide some data, but it appears by voter registration that both Texas and Florida have become redder since COVID. Now, and if that's true, because remember, Ron DeSantis barely beat that Gillum guy. Double, you know, they had to count it later and then it was just a few thousand votes or something. And now if he wins handily this fall for the governorship of Florida and, and you know, wildly exceeds that margin and, and, and that proves in a, in a sense that Florida's become redder. I mean, that, that shift is going to drive a stake into the heart of the left-wing psyche in this country because they were counting on Texas and Florida through migration domestically, but also immigration to become blue states forever. And to have that challenge, maybe just paused or slowed, but maybe even reversed, that, that to me is pretty profound in its implications for national politics in this country. I mean, there's more deplorables than they thought, and they're living longer than they thought. And we see this in Europe too. How do you think this lady wins in Italy? Well, I mean, she, people from her party took enough seats to coalesce with other parties, similar parties, and make her president or prime minister. Sorry, I forget which they have in Italy. Um, you know, how did Brexit happen? How, how does Viktor Orban continue to have pretty large democratic majority support in Hungary? You know, what's happening in Poland? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just interesting that this sense of inevitability that the Hillary Clinton sort of the globalist neoliberals had, that history has an arc, it's progressive, we're always getting better, just like the Whig theory. And of course, Hillary Clinton's the next president of the United States. We're finally going to have our first female president. She's super qualified. You know, this is a gigantic feminist victory, a long time coming. And then it didn't happen. And you know, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And maybe, maybe we'll see, but maybe this midterm will, will be not, not as big as that, but will be a further sign that some of these things that our left-wing friends imagine were inevitable actually aren't. Yeah. You know, to, to your point about the increased assertion of states, uh, their authority vis-a-vis -vis the federal government, um, you know, I always say that one of the two greatest things Trump ever did, one is just the appointments up and down throughout the judiciary uh, and kind of remaking that whole branch. But on top of that, and I doubt this was for philosophical reasons, I'm sure it was just kind of covers bud, it was more of a political expediency, was really passing on the lockdowns to the states. And it's only because of that that we have someone like DeSantis and some of the others uh, that were able to stand up and then building on that, you know, assert other uh, states' authorities. So, you know, looking forward to the next election, because this all kind of ties in with, with what you're talking about, how do you see it playing out, in particular, someone like DeSantis, who's built up a pretty nice following, 
with kind of the, the lingering specter of Trump running, whether or not he will, how do you how do you see those two, I guess, potential rivals even playing out? Well, I wish Trump would see the wisdom in stepping back. I mean, he's he's way too old uh, and he engenders way too much animosity on the left. I mean, he really exercises the left as a boogeyman. So he could actually wield a lot of power by sort of staying out of it, but not officially announcing whether he's in or out and being someone who who supports DeSantis, who is not only far younger, but far more disciplined. I mean, Ron DeSantis is, uh, you know, uh, relative to Trump, the people he surrounds himself with, the, the way he thinks about things, the way he operates is so much more uh, disciplined and rational. It, Bob Woodward wrote a book called Fear, which is about the Trump years in the White House. And Bob Woodward's a big critic of Trump. But nonetheless, if you read that book, I mean, it's pretty remarkable the way Trump would surround himself with sycophants. He would play them against each other. So rather than trying to come up with the best course of action, they'd all be trying to win favor with the boss. And then he installs uh, his own daughter and son-in-law into these quasi um, roles where they have their own little cubby offices right off the Oval Office, but they don't have an official position within the administration. So it's both nepotist, but also fraught because uh, Ivanka and Jared or Ivana, I forget, are sort of working crosswise against him and some of his cabinet. And then on top of it all, when you read Bob Woodward's book, you find that there was just open insubordination by his own department and agency chiefs. I mean, it was really remarkable. You, you have to go back to, let's say, JFK, with LBJ sort of undermining him by going to to uh, you know to Vietnam and promising lots more troops, uh, you know, I mean, th there was plain insubordination under Trump. His Joint Chiefs, his CIA, his Pentagon people, his own cabinet members. You know, they he would leave a meeting saying, "No, I don't want that. I, I want less in Afghanistan," and they he would leave the meeting and they would just laugh and say, "No, we're not doing that," quite openly. I mean, these are, this is what Bob Woodward has chronicled. And of course, he's doing this through testimony. I'm not saying it's all 100% true, but I believe that the thrust of it is true. And so you begin to say, well, what the hell difference does it make, Chris, who we elect? Because this, this deep state, for lack of a better term, the administrative agencies are pretty open. They're not deep. You know, they really do operate independently of a president. Presidents come and go. They just do what they want. And you look at that and you think, you know, is that going to be any better if we have some bruising Trump reelection bid? He's going to be, what, close to 80 years old or however old he is. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not super skinny guy. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's too much. And his ego is so vast that it clouded his judgment. He surrounded himself with people like John Bolton, who immediately started working to undermine him. I mean, his, he, his, his desire to be flattered is is just off the charts i've never it's it's just almost unbelievable i mean lots of politicians have egos but this guy you know it really is something different and so it made him unserious and unworkable in the office and and desantis has a much more cool demeanor uh much more workmanlike uh, you know thinks steps ahead uh very reticent on social media he lets uh, his his staff do that stuff in their own names. I mean, there's just a million ways where he's vastly superior. You know, great wife and family, a great success story you can point to in Florida during COVID. I mean, this is someone with, you know, Trump's business successes are pretty checkered 
at best. Whereas DeSantis can point to, re, in my opinion, lots of people hate Florida, but in my opinion, real executive success during COVID in terms of not having any greater uh, death or or, uh, or uh, infection, you know, I, infection death rates than any other part of the country, despite, despite having tons of retirees, but yet having much better outcomes with respect to business closures and school closures and, and normal life and happiness and, and having people relocate there, people with money. I mean, if you, if you look at states that are losing, like California, it's not just the, the numbers. I mean, the numbers aren't that dramatic. In, in terms of a percentage, you say, well, okay, California lost X hundred thousand people last year net relative to immigrants, but, and that's only 1% of the California population. Well, that's, that's entirely true. The problem, and, and Florida gained, but only 1% of the net, po- you know, of the population. That's true on both ends, but it's the identity of that 1%. The, the top, the top few percent in California pay just an astounding amount of the state income taxes because a lot of it's capital gains. And so, you know, it's even more skewed than it is with federal tax receipts. California state tax receipts are unbelievably skewed. Uh, They're paid by just a small uh, percentage of the very top earners. And so when those people leave, whether they're just going across the border to Incline Village, Nevada, or whether they're going all the way to Tampa, Florida, I mean, that's that's a, a very painful loss. Uh, those, those, those are the, the you know, the sheep uh, who have been paying for everything in California. So it, it really is something that I think DeSantis can, can hang his hat on. And I, I really, you know, I'm not a big voter, to be fair. And I, I don't consider myself a Republican, to be fair. I consider myself a realist who sees the left for what it is and how unhinged, uh, how separated from reality it is and is just trying to be rational about the defensive measures we can take, uh, you know, in terms of my own children and maybe someday grandchildren. Uh, so that's, that's my kind of pragmatic, hard-boiled thinking, which is that not only is Trump, excuse me, DeSantis a much better candidate for all the reasons I, I mentioned, but also much more likely to win. I think Trump loses to Biden or even, I don't know about Kamala Harris or whoever might be the candidate if it's not Biden. But I, I, I honestly believe that Trump does worse uh, in total votes a second time around. I think people have really soured on him and, and I certainly did with his, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't agree with his fast tracking the MNRA vaccines amongst a, a tiny handful of croniest patent protected liability immune pharma companies. I don't, I don't like pharma companies and I don't think they really have our best interests. Um, so uh, for, for all those reasons, I mean, I, I, really think DeSantis ought to be the nominee. And if the GOP doesn't, can't quash Trump because he's just such a cult of personality. I mean, he's the kind of guy who would just go run independent or something. I mean, he's, he just can't not be flattered. And in that sense, he's far more like Hillary Clinton than unlike, you know, they both have this sort of deep seated or atavistic need to be proven correct. That, so in, in that weird way, I'll connect him to Hillary. So Boy, oh boy, I wish, I wish to hell, Chris, my personal opinion is that he would just care more about the country than his ego this time around. Yeah, I never, it never even occurred to me, but I could see that if he, if he went independent. I guess the only thing that perhaps would stop him from running either way, maybe his true deep-seated belief that they will 
in his mind, rig the election and prevent him from winning. That because he doesn't want to yeah. be humiliated twice. Or um, they'll threaten him and his family with with uh, further civil or criminal prosecutions, whether that's federal or in New York State or whatever. In other words, say, listen, if you don't give this up, because they're scared of him. I mean, let's be honest. They're scared of what he represents and the, and what he touches in the American people, which is a populist uprising. They're very, very scared of that. And they want him to be destroyed. And so what, you know, one thing they could do is just say, listen, we are going to bankrupt you. And, and uh, Melania and Barron and your family are going to be in penury and you may well be in jail. If you don't cool your jets, you know, we're going to charge you. Uh, and they, they may, the January 6th committee may charge him regardless, but, you know, prophylactically trying to cut him off from running. But the fact that they're still so hung up on Trump shows you that they're, they're absolutely terrified of him. Yeah. Well, the person I'm terrified of is Jill Biden, because I, I can't imagine any spouse allowing the other one to, to proceed forward with a candidacy when they clearly have uh, capacity issues, right? And But so blinded by power, you know, she obviously wants him to be president. Do you think, though, that that given what we've seen over the last couple of years, that maybe with the next election, or she will sit him down or maybe the power brokers or other close confidants and say, listen, you really can't move forward whether it's because they're concerned about him or they just want someone else for other reasons, do you think that will happen or do you think he will run in 2024? I think he won't, but I don't think it'll be about concern for his health. I mean, Jill Biden, come on. I mean, that woman has been uh, at his side and he has not been uh, at the sort of uh, nice, clean character he's been portrayed as, to, to put it mildly. He's, he's a pretty bad guy. Uh, and, and look at this Fetterman candidate in Pennsylvania at a stroke. I mean, where is his family? The idea that that he should be amongst the rarest of rarities in the United States, one of a hundred U.S. senators, I mean, is so preposterous. And to be fair, you know, uh, I don't think Herschel Walker or Raphael Warnock have any business being U.S. senators in terms of their uh, abilities. A, a U.S. senator should be in the top 1% of all Americans in terms of intelligence, demonstrated ability and aptitude, achievements, Character, uh, a character, uh, judgment, temperament. They they shouldn't be elected by popular vote. They should be appointed by state legislatures. They shouldn't be representative of anything but states, not of voters. I mean, the whole thing is just so far. They shouldn't come from the U.S. House. They should generally be. I mean, a, a tremendous cut above U.S. House members. And they used to be, they used to be more Ivy League, more wealthy, et cetera. But now you just get these absolute hacks. And so, you know, the fact that John Fetterman, is that his first name, uh, could even sniff the U.S. Senate, I mean, it's just, it's just such an indictment of our system. And nobody wants to do this now. I mean, you almost have to be Mitt Romney and be really wealthy to even put up with it. But it's, 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 it really is something. I mean, Raphael Warnock is a crazed left-wing uh, hate monger. He's like a hate preacher against white people. Uh, Herschel Walker is, by all accounts, kind of a you know a dopey guy, a sweet guy, obviously a football star. But I mean, he has just terrible, terrible personal peccadilloes and not not very articulate. He can't really speak well. I mean, the U.S. Senate ought to be a place. Um, wow, you, you know. And then you look at the presidency, and that ought to be even a step above that. So I I, I don't. I don't think Biden will be the nominee. 
He certainly won't be if if this coming Tuesday goes badly for Democrats. That'll be the end of him. And they'll they'll start patting him on the head. And what you'll see, and we've already seen this to an extent, but you'll see friendly outlets start to come out with these ambushes against Biden, start to question his health, come up with things because they wanna they they'll wanna bury him. And so there, there will be political dirty tricks now against Biden to make sure he gets the message, hey, you're not running again. Now, who does that leave them? I don't think Kamala is a viable candidate. She didn't win a single primary. She didn't get a single electoral college vote. Um, I think Gavin Newsom in California, is, yeah, I, I mean, he certainly could rehabilitate himself between now and then. I think the his, his uh, actions during COVID, he had that, not, I don't want to call it a scandal, but just exposure when he was at that French laundry restaurant, which happens to be this $600 a plate kind of place where he wasn't wearing his mask. But he's also got a pretty embarrassing press conference in his past where he, you know, stupid, he admitted to some marital affair. So I don't really exactly remember what it was. But uh, so I think, you know, he's somewhat damaged goods. Obviously, Cuomo in New York is no longer a viable candidate. And, And as for these senators, that the Democrats might want to run like Amy Klobuchar. People don't like senators for president. They haven't had a lot of them. Um, And they haven't done all that well. I mean, if you look at, obviously, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy was a lion of the Senate and couldn't manage to get across the finish line. That's that's pretty – Mitt Romney, uh, well, he became senator after. But, uh, you know, there's just something about senators where we view them as kind of these genteel types. Obviously, some have made it. to the to the presidency, but people like governors a lot more because of the analogy. Well, it's it's experience, it's an executive position, especially when you're from a big state like Florida. So, okay. you know, I think I think uh, the Democratic bench is pretty soft. What about Pritzker? You know, it's it's amazing that I would even bring him up because, as far as I can tell, everything he's done has been a disaster. But I think I've underestimated him. Pritzker being the governor out of Illinois, in that fact of. You know, he doesn't look like a particularly bright or, or, or savvy guy. And yet I think politically he may be because it seems like he's done some really smart political moves. I think he's clearly interested in the presidency. Well, it's wide open. I think I think Trump's very beatable. And I, I, I don't think, I'm, you know, we, no matter how much you hate D.C. or the status quo, I don't think mo- a majority of Americans are ready for Trump part two. It's just too much. There's just a fatigue there um, with this guy. And so that means that DeSantis ought to be the front runner if if we had a, a, you know, a rational GOP. So if you're a Democrat and you're looking at that, I mean, you need a big name. You're you're scared of DeSantis. You're even a little scared of Trump. So I don't think a Pritzker, I I think they need, you know, a Hillary Clinton. I, I would absolutely not count her out. She has lived her whole life feeling that she deserves to be president. There is a burning hole within her. She is obviously a psychopath. And psychopaths don't take social cues very well, including social cues where you lost two elections, <laughs> right? I mean, that by definition, psychopaths are unconcerned with the feelings or thoughts of others. So I wouldn't put it past Hillary Clinton. I wouldn't put it past M- Michelle Obama. Uh, I wouldn't put it past a, a lot of people. And I think you know, we forget it wasn't that long ago. There were something like 10 or 12 Republicans on the stage. You had Mitt Romney, you had Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz is kind of a son of a bitch, but say what you will. I mean, he, Alan Dershowitz would tell you he was a brilliant law student. I mean, he's very hacky, 
in his public persona, but he's a smart guy. He's actually a capable guy. You had Rand Paul, you had that Scott Walker governor guy from um, Wisconsin, who was kind of a Coke uh, favored guy. I I mean, you had Mike Huckabee, you had uh, Rick Santorum from Pennsylvania. Those two were sort of more the Christian conservative end. I mean, you had a pretty, pretty big slate of candidates. Uh, Michelle, oh gosh, I can't remember her last name. Um, the 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 former congresswoman. Um, so you had you had a, a pretty big Bachman. range of yeah, Michelle Bachman, right? And, and you know, I, I would suspect that if the Democrats were smart, they would want to do something like that. I mean, don't just select uh, Gavin Newsom and then find out that California is abs- actually deeply unpopular. The, just the, the idea of a California governor is deeply unpopular in swing states. Uh, and, and But we're going to find out a lot more on Tuesday because states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa, uh, Georgia, uh, God, you know, if Georgia turns blue with this Stacey Abrams woman and if Raphael Warnock beats Herschel Walker, both of which are very possible, uh, then, you know, Georgia is a huge state with a lot of electoral college votes. I mean, that's going to be, you know, you got to look at these sort of swing states. Nevada, is Nevada actually going to elect a Republican to statewide office, which they haven't done in quite a while uh, with Laxalt. That's going to be interesting. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I think the Democrats are going to need a big, big name to, to overcome because Trump and DeSantis are brand names. They are established brands. Hillary Clinton's an established brand, but the, the rest of them really aren't. And, and just that, that brand thing is huge in politics. It, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable, but at this point, again, from a self-defensive posture, I, I, I got to hope it's DeSantis. Well, Jeff, this is great. I really appreciate your time. Obviously, people can find your writings and follow you on at the Mises Institute. What about what's your Twitter handle? Because I know you're very active on there as well. My Twitter is at Jeff Deist, J-E-F-F-D-E-I-S-T. It brings me no joy, <laughs> but I can't, somehow I, I, I can't resist. How, how are you not banned? I just, you know, I just can't resist it. It's, it's not good. It's like, it's like eating. It's like opening a box of chocolates and having ten of them. You know, it's like, yeah, I should just have two. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.